0: Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessings to rest upon us. Your blessings, the blessings of your presence, the blessings of your guidance, the blessings of confirming your love for us, the giving us of your word. Now, bore out our ears and may we hear your word through your servant, Reverend Jeffrey but may we hear so as to honor you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Reverend Jeffrey. Let's see if this can go any higher, shall we? Hold on. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to try and do that and then this. Just talk among yourselves, if you would be so kind. Hi. Hello. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very good. Come there, here. Right. Okay. Right. Wonderful. Um, do we need this? Uh, Tom, do we need this one? Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Great. Well, welcome. I'd be uh, grateful, please, if you could find uh, the book of First Peter. I'm going to read the first two verses, and then we'll pray, and then we're going to get to work. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. How are we doing? I normally wait for the fluttering of pages to stop, but right now I can only hear these fans. And I'm like, I can't, they're probably making the pages flutter. Okay, are we good? All right. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you for one another. We thank you for your Spirit who indwells us. We thank you for your Son who gave himself for us, who sprinkled us with his blood. And we thank you that you want to unite us with him by your Spirit so as to bring honour to you and to, to do good to one another. And we pray that as we have these words that your Spirit inspired in front of us, he would speak afresh through these words which he's inspired, and he would teach and nurture us and make us more like the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to start by telling you a story. It's a true story about some Christians in former East Germany in the years following World War II. Talking about the 1950s, 1940s really, late 40s, early 50s. In East Germany, in the years following World War II, there was, as you probably know, a strong Soviet communist influence. And so it wasn't an easy place to be a Christian. And if you think about the kind of situation these people would have been in, Christians behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak, they would have been isolated. Uh, They were required to cut off contact with Western Christians. It wasn't easy to communicate, even across uh, that national border. And the church was unable to form any kind of formal relationships, unable to get teaching materials. It was hard even sometimes to get Bibles. So they were isolated. And the environment that they were in was a hostile environment. It was an environment where, well, there wasn't really open persecution. Okay, there's not much record of people being uh, you know, imprisoned for their faith in East Germany um, after the Second World War. But there was always the threat of it. There was always the possibility, because the way that the police services operated was so arbitrary and whimsical and capricious that you never really knew whether you were just sort of stepping out of line, but you suspected that you probably were. And so there was always the danger that you, or probably more likely your pastor, would be arrested and you might never see him again. And you were regarded by the people in your culture as kind of outsiders. You didn't really belong. If you were a loyal East German citizen, you'd be an atheist. You wouldn't be a Christian. And the church itself had this interesting problem, because the church in east germany had had a checkered history you know what i mean by that kind of black and white history they hadn't had a very uniform record of faithfulness there were many in east germany in the 40s and 50s who in the 30s had collaborated with the nazis and compromised on the gospel and there were there descendants in the faith, their children in their families, and the people who'd come to Christ under their ministry, and they realised that these guys, our forefathers in the faith have made a mistake in the past, and we've realised that now, and some of the people who'd made those mistakes had realised they'd made a mistake, and they were determined not to repeat it again, because once you've made a mistake like that, you don't want to repeat it again when you see what the Nazis, whom you collaborated with, did in the early 40s. And so you've got this pressured, isolated church regarded by their fellow countrymen and women as outsiders, and always under the threat of persecution. And one place in particular, one place in particular, has generated for itself some, some, something of a reputation for how the Christians there responded to this situation. It's the small town of Halle, and in particular the University of Halle. There was a pastor at the University of Halle called Johannes Hamel, and there was a kind of Christian union in the university, and basically this guy was like the chaplain. He was the pastor to the students for way over a decade. And he remarkable situation he found himself in. He basically started running Bible classes, Bible school for the students, like regular weekly meetings. And every week he would have way over a 1,000 young people come to these Bible studies and he'd stand in front of them like this and he'd get his Bible and they'd get the Bibles that they had if they had Bibles and they would study the scriptures together. And what he realised is like, he's got these these young Christians, young men and young women, facing this uncertain future and not really sure how to handle the situation they're going to find themselves in. And Pastor Hamill realised that he had to teach them. Pastor Hamill realised that he had to train them, he had to equip them, by God's grace, to face this uncertain future with faithfulness and with integrity. You might say that he knew, he's an older man, he knew the spiritual growing pains that they were going to face. It's like when you're 14 or 15 or 16 years old, Like you know everything, right, don't you, because you're 16. Like, what, what is there that the guy could possibly not know? Because I think you should. one of you should just write it all down because then we'd have everything covered and it would all be fine. Um, but actually, once you get to a bit older, let's say, you realise that the years ahead of people your age are some of the most difficult years you're going to face as a Christian, where you suddenly realize, however wonderful your church has been and however wonderful your parents have been, you have to start fighting against the culture which is hostile for you. I mean, you have to start fighting against the culture that is hostile to you. Because your parents, it will be wrong for them to protect you much longer. And like you've got, some of you, six months until that time, or a year or two or three years, So how are they going to handle these spiritual growing pains? How is Pastor Hamill going to teach them? And how are they going to respond to his teaching? Are they going to grow as the disciples of Christ that they need to be? And think of all the things they needed to learn to do. They need to learn to resist the temptations of those previous generations. You know how Christians in the past have compromised because it was just easier to compromise than to be faithful. They had to learn how to live with integrity. They had to learn how to act with faithfulness. They had to learn how to build families where their children would be able to grow up in a stable Christian environment. They had to learn how to be proactive in speaking about Christ to a world that didn't really want to hear. And it's strange, because a lot of the places you guys have grown up in, um, well, people i have heard of Christ, they know the Bible's got two Testaments and they kind of heard of Jesus, but many of you may find yourselves in the future living in places which firstly are different now from the places you're currently living in, and in 10 and 20 years' time will be even more hostile to the Gospel than they are now. So how are you going to learn to be proactive in speaking of Christ in that kind of situation? Are you going to leave Christ behind when you leave the church behind? and go out into the secular world, or are you going to take Christ with you and speak in his name to the people you encounter day by day? These are the kinds of questions that Pastor Hamel was asking himself, and these are the kinds of questions he was challenging these young people with in the early 50s, late 40s in eastern Germany. And there was one book of the Bible, one book of the Bible that Pastor Hamel kept coming back to again and again and again, and he found in this book of the Bible the resources that he needed again and again and again, to help these young people to grow up and get a grip on the lives that God had laid before them and start living as Christians. Like Pastor Booth said, acting like Christians, like being the Christians that you are. And that book was the book of First Peter. First Peter is the book that Pastor Hamill chose, and he'd go through it once, and then, you know, six months later, you'd think, man, they need another dose of what for First Peter, you know? And then a the year later after that, they'd be, he'd do some bit of Exodus and a bit of Genesis, and he'd think, scratch his head, and he'd look around and he'd think, you know, this lady needs a bit of First Peter, and so do those guys over there. And he'd keep coming back to it again and again and again. So just imagine, for the sake of argument, that I had a phone call from Pastor Jeff, let's say, a year or so ago. Would you be willing to come out to do some of the Sanctus for us? And I'm scratching my head thinking, if we got 150 young people together who are going to face a Christian life in a hostile world in the decades to come, what book of the Bible might we pick, Pastor Jeff? And that's what we're going to be doing for these sessions, to dig as deep as we can and work as hard as we can in these times together in trying to get to grips with this remarkable book, the book of First Peter. Actually, I want to encourage you a bit more. Um, many other Christians throughout the history of the church have found this book to be really influential and really stirring and really important, really significant in their lives. One makes me laugh is Martin Luther, apparently, um, He called it one of the noblest books in the New Testament, quote, on a par with Romans. It's like Martin Luther thinks it's on a par with Romans, okay? Now, if you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that means he thought it was pretty good. Um, More kind of strikingly, I think, in terms of the culture that we may be moving into, certainly in my country and perhaps in your country and parts of it, in Indonesia, in modern-day Indonesia, Indonesia is a a Muslim-dominated country. And there's a story of... um, an Indonesian pastor who had the good fortune to come to the United States to train. And um, he, was, he did a course, a seminary course, uh, under one of his professors. And his professor was teaching 1 Peter, and he went straight and did that course straight away. And he ex- was explaining to his, uh, the seminary professor, this is the most popular book of the New Testament among my countrymen and women, living in Muslim-dominated Indonesia. This is the book we keep coming back to. And it's funny, because I think 1 Peter is a slightly neglected book in our circles. Well, it better stop being neglected. And I want to show you why, because I want to show you... Well, my prayer is that it will be a blessing for you, maybe now, maybe in the years ahead, as you kind of, if we can try and ingrain some lessons in our own minds in these next few days, which may equip you for the lives that God has got in store for you. So, all right, so what we're going to do, just these first two verses, we're going to look. Um, first, I want to give you a little bit of background to who the, the person was who wrote it, who Peter was, that's fairly straightforward. And then we need to try and figure out who he was writing to. That's a bit more tricky. And then I've got three things to say about the, the greeting that he gives them. There's a very distinctive form of the greeting. That Pete, The way that Peter speaks to them is very significant. So first up, let's try and find about a little bit about the situation of the first readers and the person who wrote the letter. So you've got your Bibles. If you close them, open them up again. Uh, verse 1. Okay, it's fairly straightforward. Who's the writer? Who wrote First Peter? Uh, I'm sorry. Did I... Who wrote first Peter? Peter. Amen. All right, excellent. Very good. So Peter um, Peter was uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means something along the lines of an authorized representative. Okay, you have a secular version of an apostle. An apostle of President Trump in London is the uh, ambassador in London. Yeah? So try to think of it in those terms if you can, because that would make President Trump a bit like Jesus, which would which would be misleading, wouldn't it? Um, but, nonetheless, but that's how an apostle works. And when you, if, if our prime minister ever wanted to know what Donald Trump thinks, and wouldn't it be nice to know what Donald Trump thinks? It would be interesting. Um, what, she, what she does is to go to speak to the ambassador. She doesn't call President Trump. So if you want to know what Jesus Christ thinks, it's easy. You ask his apostle. You ask the delegated, authorised representative of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what Peter is claiming to be, someone who can speak in the name of Jesus. And the first readers, well, this is more tricky. You're going to have to work hard. So if it's that... If you have a graveyard slot, like when you, you fall half asleep around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, then please ask your neighbour to kind of do this every now and then on the side of your head to wake you up, because you're going to have to work hard, okay? Um, look with me at first, verse 1 again. Here goes. So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, come back to that, don't worry about it yet, in Pontus, listen carefully, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now... Who can tell me anything about Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia? I didn't think so. Right. Pontus, Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Galatia. Wrong order. This is a region of southeastern Europe um, in what we now call western Turkey. And it is an area about the size of Texas. Okay, it's a vast, no, not, sorry, about the, not about the size, about half the size of Texas, which is still pretty vast, let's face it. Um, it is a huge area, 130,000 square miles, and it's an interesting place to write a letter to because we know that in the west, there are some towns, there are some cities, fairly reasonably sized settlements. Galatia is in the west side of it, but out in the east, there's um, tiny, tiny little rural communities. The the landscape is really mountainous, really rocky, really hard to live there, and so the people who lived there lived in tiny little communities, just a few houses, little tiny, too small to be a village, really. And the really strange thing about this region of what we now call Western Turkey is that there is no evidence at all of any Christian missionary activity in this area, or in most of the area to the east, in the whole of the first century. We have, on the face of it, no idea how these people heard about Jesus. Can we figure out how these people heard the gospel of Christ, how there came to be churches established right out there in the middle of nowhere? Who were they? Where did they hear about Christ? Look at those names again. I'm going to ask you a question in a minute. I want you to be ready to answer and see if anybody's really been reading their Bible in the last few months. Okay? Where do these names, why do these names ring a bell with you? Just three of them. Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia. Where have you seen those names before? Pontus, somewhere in the Bible. Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia. Where have you seen those names before? Nobody knows. Who's not been reading? Them? Oh, yes, madam, you do. Well, I know like, there are um, places that the apostles have written They are places the apostles have written to, yeah, including Peter here. Very good. Anybody else want to help us out? One of the most famous occasions... This man knows. Yeah, he got it. Well done. Good lad. He's not going to tell you that. He's one of the counsellors. He's a pastor. He jolly well should know. Okay? Now, one of the most famous events in the whole of the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. Turn to it if you want to. A few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, where you've got all these people in Jerusalem for the so-called Feast of Weeks. It's an Old Testament Jewish festival. Acts chapter 2 records how all these people were gathered together in the, in the city of Jerusalem for this festival, and the Holy Spirit of God descended on the Christian church that was gathered there in Jerusalem, 120 or so disciples. And the people are just kind of totally amazed by what they see. You, remember that you, you know the story, Acts chapter 2, very famous episode. People are totally amazed by what happened. And so Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon in which he tries to explain what it is that's just happened, how this is a fulfilment of the prophecy of Joel, that the Spirit will be poured out by the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, who's now risen ascended to the right hand of God, he's poured out the Spirit, that's why people are speaking in tongues and there's fire everywhere and it's kind of slightly crazy. And 3,000 people are converted, just think about that for a second. 3,000 people are converted, and these people were pilgrims to Jerusalem from all over the Jewish world. And Acts chapter 2 records where they came from. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. There were in, dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Where'd they come from? Verse 8. Oh, sorry, verse 9. Parthians and Medes, verse 9. And Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and where would you believe it? Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and so on. In other words, what happened? how did the people who first received First Peter become Christians? They were Jewish men and women who had made the long pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Feast of Weeks. And they got the shock of their lives because the Spirit of God took hold of them through the preaching of Peter. And they were among those 3,000 who were converted on that day. And sometime later, maybe a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, they would have returned home and they would naturally have planted churches. The churches would have grown, you might think. Uh, It's possible that they were later joined by other Jewish exiles from Rome or other Gentile converts, so mixed up churches, Jewish and Gentile churches, but in these tiny, tiny little isolated villages in the middle of nowhere. You think Texas is the middle of nowhere. You want to try Cappadocia, seriously. Try finding water in Cappadocia that's not so contaminated with salt that you can't drink it. It's really isolated. And that's how these people became Christians. Now, just think about that for a second. You start to learn some really, really valuable lessons. What would life be like in a church like that? Now, I've been to church this last weekend in Monroe, okay? They've just got this nice new building, okay? How many people does it seat? 1,200 or something, is that right? Massive big building, it's octagonal church, sanctuary. Beautiful thing, it's got all these rooms, and it's like big car park, sorry, parking lot. I will try to translate on the fly, by the way. I'm sorry about my American... Um, now, you would not find a big fancy building like that in the churches in Cappadocia. Like, if there might be 50 people in your village, how many Christians do you think there'd be? Four? Two? Maybe? Right, where are they going to get teaching from? Where are they going to get anything? There's no apostles nearby. What are they going to do? And they're young in their faith. They've got no access to the scriptures. Like, you can just go down to you go, go on Amazon and just buy one of these for... You know, less than you can earn in in a few minutes washing cars down your street. But there's no way, no way on earth those Christians are going to get hold of this. And you can imagine, imagine what Peter would have felt. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he's preached the gospel to these men and women. And he feels this ongoing burden, this sense of responsibility. And so what does he do? Well, he writes to them. Now, it's interesting. If I was talking to pastors, I mean, we'd have to stop here, wouldn't we, guys? And just start to think, like... Doesn't this tell us something about the burden and the responsibility that we've got to feel for the people who we're pastoring? But we're not talking to pastors now, we'll talk to those guys later. But you guys now, just think about it for a second. You need teaching, but you don't realise it. You don't realise it. You don't realise how much you need it. And if you can just imagine, think yourself back into the shoes of these, your forefathers in the faith, what would they have done? when they received this scrappy, tattered copy on a piece of messed up papyrus of a letter from Peter. Peter, the man who preached to Grandad, under whose ministry Grandad was converted. And we got a letter from him, son. And you're like, yeah, I'll read it tomorrow. But isn't that what we so often do with the Word of God? It's like, man, we have no idea how privileged we are. No idea. We're so ungrateful. And so complacent in the carelessness that we have towards this precious gift, and we think our forefathers in the faith—they didn't—it's not like they didn't have Bibles. Some of our forefathers in the faith didn't have paper. You know, great great American theologian Jonathan Edwards, your greatest theologian, right? For quite a large part of his ministry, he was writing in the 1740s, 1750s before he—no, um, yeah, 1750s before he died, and um, and. It, it, there's a whole pile of Jonathan Edwards' manuscripts which haven't yet been deciphered. And the reason they haven't been deciphered is because they were written on his wife's shopping lists in tiny handwriting. And what Jonathan would do is he'd write like this, right? And then he'd turn the paper through 90 degrees and write again. And then he'd turn it over and write again. And then he'd turn that through 90 degrees and write again. So you could use each piece of paper four times because he was so poor he couldn't afford paper. And right? you can just word process, blog, whatever you like. And it's just... we have. We have more resources than any other Christians in the whole of history, and we're more complacent than any other Christians in the whole of history. It's shameful, isn't it? So to make you realise, like, how presumptuous we could be. And I think it's one of those weird things that um, the people of God seem to thrive more in adversity than we do in relative comfort. Historically speaking, that's just a fact of history. And so be be careful, like right? you. Your parents and grandparents have prayed and taught and studied and prayed some more and worked like crazy to, to give you the kind of upbringing that you've got. And here you are at a summer camp where, like, it's fun to be a Christian. Right? And you could so easily, like, take this as, right, okay, well, this is what I deserve. Now, Jesus, when are you going to do something for me? Wouldn't that... Yeah, don't let that happen to you. Think about these guys who had nothing. And it's interesting, I've noticed... Um, I, I've been a pastor for long enough now to see kind of whole life cycles of Christians from not not sort of birth to death, so to speak, but from um, initial interest through growing in their knowledge, through becoming Christians, and then growing towards a degree of maturity and stability in their faith. And I've noticed a pattern. The people who grow towards maturity in faith are the people who really want to grow towards maturity in the faith. It's as simple as that. Really. um, The people who end up being stable, solid, faithful, happy... Mature Christians are the people who really seek first the kingdom of God. You know, there's nothing more miserable than a half-hearted Christian. Uh, the, the, I, I can almost guarantee this. The, the most unhappy man or woman on earth is not an atheist or a Buddhist or something. It will be a Christian who can't be bothered. There's nothing more depressing. Don't be that man. Don't be that woman. Yeah? Be like these guys who would have grabbed this thing with both hands and loved it. Now, think again about these people... In these isolated tiny little communities what would the surrounding culture have thought of them there they are there's three of them in their church and well think back to imagine when they first arrived home from jerusalem they'd gone maybe they'd spent quite a large proportion of the family's savings on their pilgrimage to go and then they come all the way back and they get back and they say hey everybody we just come back from Jerusalem where we discovered that the Messiah has been born and lived and been crucified and then he's been resurrected and we trusted trusted him, him and repented. And what you now need to do is to turn aside from the, the, um, the sacrifices and the ordinances of Moses and worship this Jesus, the Messiah, who our, our uh, leaders in Jerusalem had killed. Right? Can you imagine the kind of reception they would have got? Right? It would not have been, oh great, wonderful, yeah, we'll, we'll be joining you tomorrow morning for worship. It's no, no. Throughout the New Testament, you find the same pattern again and again. When people become Christians from a Jewish background, they face hostility. They're excluded from their society. And just at the level of like who their friends are going to be now, they don't have any friends anymore. Because like, you were going to go to college and you had your roommate all sorted out and it's like it's going to be great and, and now he doesn't want to talk to you. And besides, you just spent all your money because you had to go to Jerusalem and now what are you going to do? And, and that, that other guy across the street who speaks in a slightly strange way And you never really got on with him, but now he's the only other Christian you know and you're stuck with him. (laughs) Isn't that that just the way? Um, And and it's almost like you've got to rebuild your life in a culture which is hostile to you. But more than that, it's not just a social thing. It's not just that your friendship group is now slightly more restricted. There are some deep, uh, I want to say existential, you know what I mean by that? uh, uh, Questions about who you really are as a human being. Questions. Theological questions about your identity. Concerned with this particular question. Who are the real people of God? Who are the real people of God? Because according to the Jews of the first century, the real people of God are those who adhere to the the, uh, sacrifices and so on of Moses. They're defined by their connection with the Torah, the old covenant rituals and so on. And therefore, when somebody became a Christian and said, no, no, we're defined as the people of God by our baptism into Christ Jesus, the Messiah who's crucified and raised they were told in no uncertain terms, no, you're not the real people of God anymore. You don't belong to God. And so this is kind of existential crisis. Like, do do we really belong? And you you get back, and and initially you're really enthusiastic on the way home because you naively think everybody's going to be excited with you. Then you get back and the crunch comes and you realise nobody really likes you anymore. And then six weeks later you start to think, you know, maybe I've made a big mistake. Maybe I've made a big mistake. Maybe this Jesus thing was... Maybe maybe I was being a bit over-enthusiastic and swept up... With the emotion of the moment. Maybe maybe I should done. Maybe I should just go back to doing what my forefathers always done. Maybe I should carry on living as though Jesus had never come. Maybe I should go on living as though Jesus had never come. Ever found yourself thinking that? Very, very common. And it happens at the point where being a Christian suddenly gets unexpectedly difficult. So what would you say if you were Jesus? What would you say to Christians who might just in the next five or ten years be tempted to go back to living as though Jesus had never come? You might say to Peter, Hey, Peter, write these five chapters and send it to them because it might do them some good. That's what these chapters are for. They're for Christians like that, and I suspect, I'm very sorry to say, then in the years to come in your country and certainly in mine, that will be Christians like you who face those kinds of challenges and those kinds of questions. And what Peter does, actually, and we're going to go on in a minute and um, look at verse 2, but there's so much more. in um, Just at the beginning um, of verse 2, the way that Peter... Sorry, not the verse 2, beginning of verse 1, the way that Peter speaks about them is designed in a really subtle but powerful way to counter this idea, to dispel this myth that they are somehow not the real deal. Look carefully at how he describes them. Look back at your Bibles, at verse, verse 1. Notice he doesn't say, uh, to the saints in Pontus Galatia and so on, like Paul does in 1 Corinthians. Yeah? And most of the letters of the New Testament address the saints, that is, the holy ones, the people sanctified by the Spirit. But what does he do here? He says, to those who are, and then what are you talking about? Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now, what's that all about? Now, listen up. Elect, exiles, dispersion. All of these terms were technical ways of describing the old covenant people of God. Elect meant chosen by God the Father. Exiles meant you are the ones who were sent away from Jerusalem into exile, but don't worry because God still cares about you. And dispersion meant scattered or dispersed around the place. So normally what you would do is, you, if you were an old covenant Israelite, you would think, we're the elect exiles of the dispersion. We're the elect chosen by God. We have been scattered to the four winds of heaven, but God still cares for us. And Peter says, no, no, you are the elect exiles of the dispersion. I like, don't care what anybody else says. And you shouldn't care what anybody else thinks. You are the people whom God has called himself. You are the people for whom God cares. In fact, this fits... With the the way in which this language is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used in Acts chapter eight, when the um, when the uh, persecution against Stephen in Acts chapter seven reaches its climax. First Christian martyr Stephen is is stoned by the Sanhedrin, and when it when they finish kind of stoning him to death, and um, what happened? Basically, the the church scatters from Jerusalem, and all these words. the the dispersion language is used, but here it's applied not to the Jewish people, the old covenant people of God, it's applied instead to the church. It's a really kind of provocative way of reconfiguring this language. So what what the Lord is saying is like, in the past, the true people of God were those Jewish people who'd been scattered by the Babylonians, but now the true people of God are those people who believe in Jesus, who've been scattered by the unbelieving Jews. You are the true people of God, Peter is saying. And the reason it's important is because, according to the scriptures, the ones whom God has scattered are the ones whom God will gather. The ones whom God has scattered are the ones whom God will gather. It says in Nehemiah chapter 1, don't need to turn to this, but um, when Nehemiah is pleading, he's pleading with the Lord to have mercy on his um, fellow Israelites in relation to their rebuilding the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and so on, he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you. But if you return to me, I will gather you. So if you're the, you want to be the scattered ones, because if you're the scattered ones and you're faithful and you return to the Lord, then he will gather you. And what Peter is saying to these Christians is you're the ones who got scattered, and you're the ones whom God is going to gather. Let there be no question at all. The first thing that all of you need to know, in other words... Draw all this together. This is a summary of what we've been talking about so far. The first thing that you all need to know as we approach the rest of this letter is that you are the ones whom God is determined to gather to himself. You are the ones whom God loves. You are the ones for whom God sent his son. You are the ones for whom Christ died. You are the ones who have been sanctified by the Spirit. And you are the ones who will be gathered to the Father. You are the ones. You've not made a mistake. You've not made a mistake. Whatever the world might tell you, you've not made a mistake. You are the ones whom God is gathering to himself. Okay, now, that was the introduction. We've got a few minutes left, right, have we? Yeah, plenty of time, excellent. So what I want to do now is I want to look at verse 2. And we will be moving through the rest of the letter of 1 Peter a little bit more quickly than this, so don't worry. But what I want to do is look at um, verse 2, and what happens is that Paul, uh, Paul Peter um, uh, greets his brothers and sisters in Christ, in a very distinctively uh, Christian way. It's a Trinitarian greeting. You know what I mean by that? It's a Father, Spirit, Son greeting. Let me read verse 2 and you'll see what I mean. And then we're going to look at each part of this one at a time. Here it goes. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Father, Spirit, Son. You are the Father, Spirit, Son people. And let's just look in a few minutes at what Peter says in relation to the work of the Father and the Spirit and the Son in the lives of the people he's writing to. You've been chosen by the Father, first thing he says, the foreknowledge of God the Father. How many of you have ever been on holiday to a really wild and isolated place? Where's the most, yeah, you've been? Where'd you go? I probably can't hear you, these fans. Shout it out. Where's that? Austin? <laughs> Alaska. Alaska, right. Now, how far were you from the nearest kind of big town, roughly? How do you think? 50 miles? Hmm? Hundreds, of miles. Hundreds of miles. That's insane. You know, you can't do that in England. There's no way you can go. Like it was funny. We drove in a straight line today for five hours. That is not possible on my island. You would fall off the edge if you started anywhere. You start, you like, you run out of land. Right? And and there's 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 something there's something wonderful, isn't there, about isolation? Isn't that nice? There's something wonderful about isolation. Why? Well, it's wonderful about isolation because normally you're so surrounded by people, and you know what that's feeling like because you're stuck in this hot room like this with people all around you. And sometimes to get away from it all, so lovely. Yeah, just in the freedom. My um, uh, family and I, in a few weeks' time, we're going to go up to the Grand Canyon. And I'm looking forward to standing in a place where nobody else is. Because like, London, before I live, man, there's just people everywhere. People looking over your fence and walking past your front door. It's impossible to get away from people, people, people. And I like that, but it's nice to get away from it all. But imagine if your life was away from it all. Your life was. This time that you went to Jerusalem might have been the only time in your life that you'd seen triple figures of people. Think about that for a second. You're used to seeing double figures of people, but now the double figures of people don't really want anything to do with you, so you've got two friends. And you don't feel that anybody cares for you, you don't feel that anybody knows you. Knows you in the sense of they don't know you're there, they don't care that you're there. And knowledge as well is to do with relationship, isn't it? And so what Peter does here, he says, to these Christians who... Some of them, perhaps not all of them, but some of them feel like nobody knows they're there. They could just disappear off the face of the earth and nobody would notice. He says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It doesn't matter if nobody else knows you're there, God knows you're there. God knows you're there. The foreknowledge of God the Father, then, refers both to the fact that yeah, God knew you before you were born. God knew you before the creation of the world. God has had his hand upon you throughout the whole of history and he's shaped the whole of human history to bring you and all the people around you to precisely this point, which is precisely where he wants you to be. God's, God's foreknowledge in the sense of predestining your whole life. But knowledge in the Bible, if, it's, if God is said to know a person, it doesn't mean he just knows about them. He knows them. It's like... I know that you're there, like this guy here in the yellow shirt, I know he's there, but I've no idea of his name. No idea where he's come from. Don't know anything about your life. Yeah. I don't know I don't know whether you like football or baseball or cricket, although probably not cricket. Although I could teach you, would you like to learn? No. But you're the pastor, so yes. Like right? But you see, if I get to know you, yeah I'm gonna have to go and talk to you afterwards, sorry about that. Um, but (laughs) But then it's, it's not just knowing that you're there, is it? And God doesn't just know that you're there. He knows you. Yeah? And that's one of the things that, Paul, that Peter wants you to hear. He, he's, he wants you to, to know that you're known, to know that you're cared about, to know that you matter. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second, verse 2 again the second part of this Trinitarian greeting, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The second thing Peter wants to say, you have been sanctified by the Spirit. Sanctified? Who wants to tell me what sanctified means? I'll wake you up. Come on, yes, sir, please. Purified, yes? Any any other contributions? Yeah, Grant. To To make holy, very good. Sanctification has the idea of purification, yes, because it means fundamentally to make holy. In Greek and in Hebrew... The word to make holy and the word to sanctify the same word, it's not two different words. So you make something holy and that's a way you purify it. Now, um, in um, the, uh, the old covenant life of the people of God, um, sanctified referred to um, a couple of different ways of being holy. Sometimes you would have holy things or holy places or holy sacrifices or holy priests and so on, and holiness then referred to their status. It's like this thing is set apart for a particular job. You could have a jug, say, or a bowl, and it's holy. It's a holy bowl, and it doesn't mean it's sort of glowing in magic. What it means is, uh, this is for special use in the sanctuary. It's, it's for the tabernacle. It's to be used in connection with the worship of God. Okay? So holiness then means you might summarise it as set apart for a special purpose. Anything that is to be used in close proximity to the holy God needs to be holy. Special purpose. Now this is really useful to remember because holiness is not just about um, a kind of inner life of godliness. It is about having a special purpose, having a special job to do. If you make, uh, let's say, a, a person holy in Old Covenant terms, then what you're saying is um, you won't be going to war anymore, and um, you won't be doing much farming. You have a special job to do worshipping God in the tabernacle. It's like special operations soldier, yeah, but divine worship. So holiness, I think sometimes we get the wrong idea about holiness and about sanctification. It's true that sanctification refers to our purity of heart and our purity of life, but it refers also to the fact that you have a job to do. Like, God's way of dealing with the chaos in the world is to get holy people and give them a mission. And you see this kind of scattered throughout First Peter. So look at, um, for example, chapter 2, verse 9. I'll just look at this briefly with you. Um, look how... Um, how Peter uses the language of holiness here. It's really intriguing. You are a chosen race, chapter 2, verse 9, over the page, probably in your Bibles, um, chosen race, a royal people, a holy nation. Now, what's a holy nation for? You're a holy nation, Peter says. Okay, let's carry on. A people for his own possession. And then he explains what he means by this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So holiness does not mean you sit in your room and just make sure you stay holy. Maybe if I don't move, I won't sin. That'd be good. So I'll sit dead still. Maybe I'll, tell you what, I'll just stay in bed. That's nice. So remain completely holy. No. Holiness means you get out there and proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Holiness in 1 Peter 2.9 means an evangelist. Or, if not an evangelist, somebody who is an instinctive evangelist when they get the chance. Somebody who won't let an opportunity to talk about Jesus go past... And miss the opportunity. Yeah? Uh, holiness in 1 Peter two nine means that you get a job in the summer vacation and you're working for a building company or you're a clerk in an insurance firm or something and within the first three days everybody knows you're a Christian. And it's because you told them you're a Christian. Because you realise that you've been put here, now you, you must have a job to do. What would be the job of a Christian stuck in a place surrounded by non-Christians? Well it might be to tell them about Jesus, mightn't it? Yeah? So holiness has to do both with the holiness of your heart, the purity of your heart, this gentleman said, and also the fact that you have a job, a task, a mission to accomplish. Now, it's really important then to see why these two things go hand in hand. Because if I might speak bluntly for a moment, you are absolutely no use on the mission that God is going to send you on if your heart is not holy. If you are not holy in your heart, if you are not holy in your life, your purpose will fail. And you're about as much use as we say in England as a chocolate fireguard. You don't have fireguards in Texas probably because you don't need fires most of the time. Fireguard is like a thing that goes around a fire to guard it. If you made one of chocolate, you can figure out what would happen. Okay. Now, I was thinking about this earlier because what Pastor Booth said. Do you know, when um, it, like the one rule was act like a Christian. And I think for a second, why is that the rule? Act like a Christian. Do you think that is just to make your counselors' lives easier? Like, if, if, if you act like a Christian, and they're all going like, yeah, please. No. The, the reason that we want you to act like a Christian is not just so that the counselors' lives will be bearable for the next three and a half days, although that would be nice. The reason we want you to act like a Christian is because we are trying to train you to be a Christian. And if you will not act like a Christian now, there is not the slightest chance you will act like a Christian out there. You will not be holy in the world if you cannot be holy at camp, for goodness sake. And if you will not be holy in the world, then you will be useless in any task or mission or purpose that the Lord calls you to. You're a waste of space. And so the purity of heart, which we are trying to train you in, and the godliness of life, which we are trying to encourage you in, is not just so that we can have like a quiet time and just like, you know, we can have a chat in the evening. We don't have to kind of stay up till 2 in the morning to make sure you're not running out of your dorms into the forest in the middle of the night. You better not be doing really seriously. Really? You want to go into the woods here? You know how many ways there are of being chewed to death in Texas? I, I was absolutely horrified. I was sitting on the, the porch of the Maddoxes in, in and they were, I think they were, I hope they were teasing me. Maybe they were telling the truth. All the different kind of, there are ants like two centimetres long that can put you in hospital. I'm like, is that true? Really? Oh, man, I don't believe I've come here. Why don't I just stay in London? Um, what was I talking about? Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. Act like a Christian. Don't go out in the woods and yeah, right. So the point is, look, it, this is th- th- you may have a bunch of bad habits, so kick them now. Seriously, like, and s- if you start now and you kick the bad habits for three days, that's a really good start because three days beats three hours, doesn't it? So take the opportunity. You know, you've got four other Christian guys in your dorm now. Be accountable to them. Whatever it is, yeah. Don't miss the opportunity, because some of you are 16, 17, 18 years old. You don't have much more of a chance to get trained to be useful in the world, to be sanctified, to be the kind of holy, faithful, committed man or woman of integrity that God can actually use to do something productive. What are you going to be like in 10 years' time? Well, you will be like in 10 years' time, whatever you are now, plus wherever you are heading. Yeah, so think, what, what do I want to be when I'm 25? And then head in that direction. Yeah. By the grace of God, you might get there. So you've been sanctified by the Spirit. Third, you've been sprinkled with Christ's blood. Verse 2, again. Chapter 1, verse 2. We're nearly done. I know it's hot. You're doing well, okay? I'll talk for much longer this evening. Don't worry, when it's cooler. Um, <laughs> they didn't laugh at that. They think of me. Oops. Okay, here it goes. Verse 2. In the sanctification of the Spirit, second thing... Third, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, there's some obvious things here. I'm not going to go over those things again, like obedience to Jesus Christ. Like, take up your cross and follow me. Why would you want to take up your cross to follow Jesus? Well, because he took up the cross. Okay, so obedience to Jesus Christ means walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You can't receive Christ in relation to his forgiveness without walking in the footsteps of Christ in relation to his holiness. You get Christ or you don't get Christ. You have Jesus or you don't have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, then you're walking along the road with him. And if you're walking along the road with him, he's not going to be walking down the dark alleys of sinfulness, is he? So obedience to Jesus Christ. And cleansing by the blood of Christ. Because truth be told, however closely you try to stick to the, the side of your big brother, our Lord Jesus, however closely you try to stick, as he's walking straight at the middle of the road, your feet will stray. Yeah? And your feet will stumble. And your steps will stutter and you will fall. And one of the things you need to know is that every day forgiveness is fresh. Every day you are invited once again to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Why do you think Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins? It's because God is like up there ready just to say your sins are forgiven. Your sins are cleansed. And some of you come here like, and actually I, I remember being your age, and you secretly think, and actually you're right, that some of the folks around here are much more godly than you. Yeah, and some of them are. For some of you, that's really true, and you've come here with a whole bunch of like regrets, and you've heard talks like this before, where somebody said, "You know, you haven't got very long to grow up and become a faithful, godly Christian man or woman," and it's like that was last year, and like really you haven't changed much, and it's like, "Am I ever going to change?" And you, well, yes, you can, but the first thing you need to know is that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Seriously, and God is like. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, he's forgotten about them. So please don't try and remind him. God doesn't want to know. He's determined to put your sins behind his back. But one final thing: there is there's a strange uh, phrase. There's a strange way in which that little phrase that I've just read to you is is phrased in the Greek text of First Peter. Your Bibles, if they're like mine, have probably smoothed it out. Um, to try and make sense of it in English. Because if you translated it literally, it would say, um, uh, for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And So that's a really, thing, really strange thing to say. What, what do you mean, obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ? And we, what you've got to think, if, if you have a strange phrase that is not how you'd naturally write it, one of the questions you've got to ask yourself is, um, where in the Bible have I seen this before? What is the writer trying to do? Is he trying to remind me of something... That I might have spotted elsewhere, and I'm not going to ask you where you think this one is because this is tricky. Some of the guys at the back have got it, but um, there is only one place really in the Bible where obedience and sprinkling and blood are mentioned side by side. And that place, I want no to turn to it. You can if you like. It's Exodus 34. Sorry, Exodus 24. It's a very significant moment because what's just happened in Exodus 24, first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus, the people have been led out of slavery in Egypt and they're free now in the Promised Land. Now, what they're going to make of that freedom, who knows? But um, Exodus chapter 20, then, they receive the law of God, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Chapters 21 to 23, then that covenant is fleshed out in detail. You've got all the case laws of Exodus so far, so-called. far, so So, like, if you have an ox and it gores somebody, this is what you've got to do. And if you have this situation, this is what you've got to do. In other words, this is the way you're supposed to live. So you get to the end of Exodus chapter 23, and everybody knows what they're supposed to do now. And Exodus chapter 24 the people confirm their commitment to the Lord. And here's what they say. Chapter 24, verse 7. Moses takes the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. He reads all this stuff that he's heard from the Lord. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient, obedient. And Moses took the blood, blood, and he literally sprinkled it. It says through it, but through, sprinkled, same word in Hebrew. Obedient, blood, obedient through or sprinkled all over the people they're all covered in the blood of the sacrifice that has just been made obedience sprinkling blood so you have been chosen by the father and sanctified by the spirit for this kind of commitment to the Lord and did you notice what it was that the people have just said what do they say when Moses he's got to the end of his sermon and all the people say quote all that the Lord has spoken we will do you ready to say that I'm not going to ask you to say it now. Okay. Are, you ready? are you ready to go out from here this evening and say to yourself, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. If you're ready to do that, then you're ready to hear the rest of the book of First Peter. And we'll see you later on this evening for the next instalment. Should we pray together? Merciful God, we pray that you would continue to be present among us by your spirit and work in us, in all the different ways in which you see that we have need. We thank you for our brother and saviour and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself to cleanse us from our sins and to renew and strengthen and purify us and to lead us in the way of righteousness. And we pray that you would lead us towards yourself, that every step along the, the road of our lives will be a step headed in the direction of being gathered to you because it's a step of faithfulness, a step of commitment, a step of obedience a step of joyful, faithful love and commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.